Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. We're back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're doing part 3 of Paul's final instructions to that Thessalonian congregation and by extension to us also. So read with me beginning at verse 12. I want to read the passage again. Paul writes, he says, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. Church, this is the word of the Lord. NIV 1983 version. I want to talk to you about basically verse um, 19 this morning. We're going to camp out on that verse a little bit. It speaks about the Holy Spirit. Who, what do you know about the Holy Spirit? What do you know about the Holy Spirit? If you don't know very much, you're going to learn some of the, th- some of the things this morning, but I want to encourage you, uh, if you don't have in your own personal library a theological textbook, you should purchase one. We have them available in the bookstore. So I want to encourage you, every Christian, if you're serious about the Word of God, you should have a theology textbook and as well as a concordance in your personal library. And so given that, what place does the Holy Spirit have in your life? What place does he have in your life? And as a corollary to that, what place does the word of God have in your life? Because they work hand in hand, if you will. For many believers today, the importance of the Holy Spirit has been minimized tragically, and so also the ministry of the word. The Holy Spirit's ministry, along with that of the word, has become sadly secondary to pragmatic, humanistic techniques, methodologies in dealing with people's emotional and spiritual issues. The church's current preoccupation with psychology, for example, substitutes man-centered approaches for biblical truth, dealing with personal and spiritual issues. Spiritual resources God has given us Peter tells us that in 2 Peter. 
God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. Peter wrote that over 2,000 years ago. The church was suffering terrific persecution, trials under Nero in the Roman Empire. And Peter assures them, God has given you everything you need for your life and for godliness. Is the same true for us? Absolutely. We don't need to look outside. There is a sense in which the Holy Spirit and God's word, for, for lots of people, there's a sense in which uh, the Holy Spirit and God's word deal with life issues simplistically, superficially. By that I mean people will say to me, well, you know, I, I, I do pray and I do, I do um, read my Bible, but they're deeper issues. I need help with these deeper issues. No one knows those deeper issues than the Holy Spirit himself. Do you know that? And yet, psychotherapy is supposed to get at the hidden, deeper issues and bring genuine, deep-seated healing when, in fact, it's the Holy Spirit utilizing the Word and prayer that provides deep, effective, lasting spiritual deliverance and healing. Issues. Very often, we think that there, there are these, all these deep issues that have to be dealt with. I want to suggest to you that there are real issues and there are apparent issues. And very often the apparent issues overshadow the real issues. Who knows what the real issues are? God does. God knows what the real issues are. And it's a matter of us waiting on him, a matter of us trusting him, a matter of us walking in obedience to him by faith, knowing and being confident that he is going to deal with the real issues of our life. And he'll work, the Holy Spirit is going to work in us, the word of God, prayer, accountability, resources that we've been provided with. I want to suggest to you that's really critical. But with the de-emphasis of the Holy Spirit's working through the word in the church today, and I'm not talking about necessarily our church, I'm talking about the broad evangelical uh, Christian church in America uh, with the de-emphasis of the Holy Spirit's working through the word, there is a significant lack of spiritual discernment. Should we as Christians be spiritually discerning? Absolutely. And the result of this de-emphasis, um, there are a number of sad and tragic effects. Let me just list some of these for you. Uh, there's been a weakening in terms of doctrinal understanding, doctrinal clarity, and conviction. Do we know right doctrine? And do we live by right, true doctrine? Or is everything just kind of mushy? Many believers today, sadly, don't really think biblically. They consider it wrong to be dogmatic on any particular spiritual subject. Even on the most basic doctrines, such as the inerrancy of Scripture and the definition of the gospel. In all of our preaching and teaching, Andrew, myself, Michael, we try always to include an articulation of the gospel. We want you to know the gospel. Far too many Christians cannot articulate the gospel. Let me give you four words that will help you. You ready? God, man, Christ response. 
The gospel is contained in those four words. And if you understand God, everything starts with God. God made everything. He is sovereign. He created everything, and he created it all good or bad? Good. You go through the first chapter of Genesis, God said it's good. He said this is good, this is good, this is good. Man. He created man, he says very good. He gave man an instruction. What was the instruction? <laughs> Just don't eat of that one tree. It's a testimony would you remain dependent on me or are you going to do things on your own? Does that sound vaguely familiar? What did he do? He disobeyed. The Bible says he disobeyed. The Bible says Eve was deceived, Adam disobeyed. They're both culpable, but for different reasons. So man now sinned. He disobeyed God. God, man, what's the solution? Does God just leave us to our own devices? No, no. He sent his one and only son, Christ, to pay the price for our sin and disobedience and wickedness. It's through Jesus Christ and faith in him only that we're saved. That's the response part. God, man, Christ, response. Everybody, you can't just say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There must be a response to God's offer of salvation. Are you with me? Many people today, sadly, don't make sharp distinctions between what's true and what's false. It's all kind of fuzzy and, and muddled today. Everything's relative. There's no really right and no really wrong. Instead, we find our society, and this certainly bleeds into the church, because we've all come out of the society. We've all been brainwashed, if you will, into relativism. And so we embrace subjectivity. We embrace uh, relativist thinking and pragmatic thinking. I love this. I'm forever hearing, does prayer really work? You don't pray to get prayer to work. You pray to express dependence on God. You pray because you want to acknowledge him. If you're married, how many married people do we have here? Do you talk to your spouse just to get something from them? No, you pray. You talk to your spouse because you want to what? Communicate. I want to communicate with you. That's what prayer is all about. We're learning to speak to and listen from and hear from God. That's what prayer is all about. But we have this pragmatic way of thinking. Does this work? See how easy it is to fall into that? Many Christians today, sadly, again, are reluctant to risk offending unbelievers with a clear, convicting gospel message instead relying on what's known as a seeker-friendly message. A message that focuses on people's felt needs. Oh, my felt needs. As opposed to my real needs. What is a person's real needs? Their real needs are for repentance, forgiveness, and a relationship with God. Yet we're, we're, we're rubbing people's tummies just to make them feel good and hopefully we just, they'll, they'll somehow come to church and Pastor Andrew will lead them to Jesus. 
Many Christians prefer today's sermons, messages that are just simply anecdotal, psychologically based, modern, subjective, rather than an objective exposition of God's word. You come to Hope Chapel, you're going to learn the Bible. We have preached the Bible from the very inception of this church. We have two ladies here who were back in the beginning, 40, 50, almost 50 years ago. They happen to be both sitting together. It's crazy. <laughs> the modern church has mostly ceased exercising church discipline. We dare not discipline anybody. We dare not confront people over what we see as persistent sin and error and rebellion. The modern church tragically isn't much different from the world. Self-absorbed, preoccupied with personal comfort, personal success, achieving man-centered solutions to life's issues, possessing a shallow, superficial faith that can't discern between good and evil, truth and error, and cannot communicate clearly and accurately the gospel to other people. It's all about us. It's all about, it's all about me, what I want. I want to be safe and comfortable. I want easy life. All these things relentlessly threaten the church's spiritual health, well-being, and effectiveness. Look with me at verse 19. He says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Other translations say, do not quench the Spirit. What does Paul exactly mean by that? Well, it's been variously interpreted, and, and one of the major interpretations is uh, that Paul's telling the Thessalonians not to stifle the expression of spiritual gifts, and especially the spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues in their assemblies. That these utterances be tested and they should hold on to that, which is good. And, and the reason people take that tack in terms of interpreting the verse that way is because of verses 20 and 21. But I want to suggest to you that verses 19 through 22 are simply separate, separate statements of general exhortation. They're principles for the Christian life. Let's, let's not fall into a, a thinking that, that what he's saying there just applies only to spiritual gifts. Are you with me? Yeah. I, I know most people today, especially in the Pentecostal and charismatic environment out of which we've grown, uh, would tend to take that particular interpretation. But I want to offer you a separate interpretation. Because if the Thessalonians had, in fact, been abusing uh, spiritual gifts, I'm sure that Paul would have addressed them as he did who? The Corinthians, remember? He wrote three chapters to the Corinthians about their use and abuse uh, and, and disuse of spiritual gifts. But to appreciate this, this short command, verse 19, and to view it in proper perspective, we need to understand the Holy Spirit's role in our lives so that we won't put out the Spirit's fire. As I read down through you, there's, there's lots of verses, and I'm not going to get to them all because I'm in a hurry this morning, and I 
but I'm giving you the verses. You can do the Bible study yourself, amen? By his sovereign power, by his sovereign power, God, through the Spirit, regenerates sinners. Now, what does that mean? Regenerates. Jesus told Nicodemus in the third chapter of John's Gospel, one of the most profound verses in the Bible, verse 3, he says, Nick, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are what? Born again. That means you must be regenerated. In that same chapter, in verse 6, he tells Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Verse 8, he reiterates that. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. We're all sinners. We're all conceived in sin. We're all by nature objects of wrath. You can have the kingdom of God right in front of you. You'll never see it unless you have what? Eyes to see it. To have eyes to see it, you must be regenerated. You must be born again. God gives us a brand new nature. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his what? His mercy. He saved us through the washing of, of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who, who, who actually does the work of regeneration, giving us a brand new nature. We have a complete transformation in our life of our spiritual appetite and affection. As a believer, we have a brand new nature, and attendant to that brand new nature is a brand new appetite, a brand new uh, sense of affections, Listen to Ezekiel chapter 36. I will put my spirit in you and move you. Look at that. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is God at work. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, in other words, if anyone is a Christian born again, he is a what creation? New creation. The old is gone, the new has come. If you are born again, the old you doesn't exist anymore. It's a new you. You live in the same earth suit, if you will, but spiritually speaking, you are a new creation. You're a brand new person. And you should be experiencing new affections, new appetite. When we're, when we're born in sin, we're born with a bent away from God. When you're born again, you're given now a bent towards God. You lean into those things. There's something in you that says, mm, I want to read my Bible. I want to spend time in church. I want to hang out with God's people. I want to pray. You have an appetite for these things. Where before you never did. You care less. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Have their minds set on what the Spirit, as a man thinks, Proverbs says, so what? So is he. So a born-again person is someone who has a whole new mindset because they've been changed, they've been transformed. 
The Holy Spirit frees sinners from habitual sin. He frees us from habitual sin. Romans chapter 6. Thanks be to God that though you used to be what? Slaves to sin. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching, i.e. the gospel, to which you were entrusted. And you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You have a whole different life now. That monkey on your back has been cast off. God set you free from the power of sin and from its penalty, but not necessarily yet its total presence. That will happen one day. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to what? Holiness, and the result is eternal don't you love it? The Holy Spirit brings us into God's family, the body of Christ. I love this. Romans chapter 8. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry what? Abba, Father. I want to, I want to suggest... Before you became a true born-again believer, you may have believed in God, and you may have referenced God somewhere in your speech. You say, God this, God that, God this, God that. And by the way, I want to remind you that uh, God's last name is not damn. <laughs> you have, you, you, you talk about God, but now you become a believer. And the Holy Spirit now begins to build intimacy in your life with him. And you call him, you, God, just call him God is not enough. You've got to call him what? Father. Father. Abba. Abba is the Aramaic word that is not really effectively translated into English. That's why they leave it in the Aramaic in the text. Abba, Father. Jesus says, when you pray, pray, Father. Father, all of us want to be able to appeal to a loving, compassionate, understanding, all-powerful Father. Father. Papa. Papa. My grandkids call me Papa. He takes up permanent residence. He takes up permanent residence in each new believer. John chapter 14. I love this. Jesus says, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. He says, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives. Now notice that he lives what? With you and he will be in you. When did the Holy Spirit take up residence in believers? Day of Pentecost, that's right. On the birth of the church, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell on those disciples, and ever since then, you profess faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. He's lived, wherever we go, he goes with us. It's not like he's just looking over our shoulder. He's in us. 
Romans chapter 8. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. You may be feeling out of control, but if you're a believer, he's in you and he's in control. He's in control. (laughs) You may be tempted to feel anxious. He's in control. He's there. He knows. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. We are purchased with a price. Amen? Yes. He pours God's love into our hearts. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Hope does not disappoint us because... God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. He pours his love. If you lack love for somebody and you know you should be loving them, right? Your wife, your husband. God, give me some more love. (laughs) Pour some more of your love in there. Fill up my heart with your love. Will he do it? Is that a prayer do you think he'd answer? Absolutely. Absolutely. Holy Spirit equips us for ministry, equips us for spiritual ministry with spiritual giftings. We know that if you read 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, you read all about spiritual gifts for the equipping and the building up of the church. It's the Holy Spirit's work. And he gives the gifts as he determines. He seals us for eternity. I love this. People will say, Pastors, well, can I lose my salvation? Well, let's see what the Bible says. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now it is God who makes both us and you do what? Stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. What do you suppose he means by guaranteeing what is to come? Heaven, eternity, life with him. Isn't that marvelous? Look with me at this, Ephesians chapter 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit, and here comes the word again, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. (laughs) He's got a firm grip on me. He paid a heavy price to get me, and I am not going to slip through his fingers. Somebody say hallelujah. Amen. Amen. He sanctifies us. He sanctifies us. Romans chapter 15. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace that God gave me. 
to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He sanctifies us. He sanctifies us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And that is what some of you were. So he, he, he previously that catalogs a whole bunch of sins where all of us could identify with to one degree or another. He says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our... Is God do amazing things? This is all the work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. You see, it is all these things that are part of this sanctifying work. Everything I've described to you up to this point that Paul commands the Thessalonians not to dampen. Don't dampen, don't stifle, don't extinguish the Holy Spirit. Don't put out the Holy Spirit's fire. This is what he's doing. He does more. He illuminates the word of God for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As it is written, no eye has seen, no ears heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his what? By his spirit. That's just another saying. The Holy Spirit illuminates God's truth, God's word to us. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. How many want to know the deep things of God? You read his book. Read his book. The Holy Spirit's going to just go, you're going to go, whoa, I never saw that before. Anybody experience that? Isn't that exciting? You see, whoa. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. He illuminates God's word and God's truth to us. 1 John chapter 2. As for you, the anointing you receive from him, that just another way of saying the Holy Spirit, remains in you. You do not need anyone to teach you. You can be on a desert island with the Bible, and I promise you, God's going to speak to you and teach you his truth. One more verse, John chapter 16. <laughs> Jesus says, I have much more to say to you. I could say that, couldn't I? More than you can now bear. <laughs> but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. Wow. I must suggest to you, we only grow spiritually as we feed on the word and allow the Holy Spirit to, to illuminate our understanding, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. Like newborn babies crave 
pure spiritual work so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. What do you say? Crave it. When was the last time you craved the Bible? When was the last time you craved reading, meditating, memorizing Scripture? We can stifle the Holy Spirit. We can put out the Spirit's fire in our life simply by failing to read our Bibles consistently. But not just read it, actually study it. Spend time in it. Did you read your Bible today? Well, I meant to. What happened? Uh, I forgot. I get busy. Phone rang. I had to do my emails. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 2. Do your best. You ever heard that? Do your best? Does anybody ever really do their best? No. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one, what? Approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Should that be, should that describe every Christian? What do you think? Now certainly Paul talking to Timothy, but the word is there for all of us. Psalm 119, verse 11. This is a great verse. I love this verse. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not, what, sin against you. What does he mean there? I've hidden your word in my heart. What do you think that is a euphemism for? I'm memorizing your word. It's in my heart. Colossians 3.16. We, we memorized this months ago, remember? Colossians 3.16. This is a great verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you minimally. No, let it dwell in you what? Richly. Richly. Notice, as you what? As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. You know, we, we, we have great worship, do we not? And uh, I'm always encouraging Alan and Justin, I said, make sure that we're singing the truth. Not just some emotional, feeling-oriented thing. Sing scripture. Sing the truth. So Alan and Justin, when they write music, when they write songs, they're doing that. We want to know the word and want the word to dwell in us richly. And music helps that word dwell in us richly, doesn't it? You find yourself during the days humming with the songs from today. Yeah. I do all the time. Again, the Holy Spirit brings us into intimacy with God. We talked earlier about that. He assures us that we are God's children. That intimacy is very important. So many times Christians say, I just don't, I don't feel God. You're not going to feel God until you begin to realize that he lives in you and he loves you and you draw close to him because he's not ever going to leave you. And the more you, more you approach him with confidence in faith, you will begin to feel God. You suppose God wants you to know that? I do, absolutely, absolutely. 
The Holy Spirit prompts us to pray for divine resources. Psalm, Psalm uh, 116. I love the Lord for he heard my voice. Again, people say, oh, Pastor, does God hear my prayers? Yes, he hears every prayer. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. That beautiful. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. This is a verse every Christian should certainly know. Jesus says what? He says, set your priorities. Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all this other stuff that you're concerned about, he says, I got it. I got it. I know what you need. I'll take care of you. I'm going to provide. Seek me first. Put me first. Put me first. Philippians chapter 4. Great passage. Especially in our culture where so many people are freaked out and anxious and fearful. Paul says to us what? Do not be anxious about anything. Not nothing. Yeah, but you don't know my problems. God knows them. You don't have to be anxious. He's got it. He's got it. But I got to pay my rent. He's got it. Right, Evelyn? A mirror. We prayed last week for a miracle. She got a miracle this week on her rent. Oh, gosh, that's awesome. Do not be anxious about anything, but in most things, everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You know why he says that by prayer and petition with thanksgiving? Because that with thanksgiving, you, you're communicating, I know you got this. You want me to ask, but I'm going to ask, but I'm going to do so confident that you got this. And then what? The peace of God. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. <sighs> Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. I love this verse. Let us then approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You can come with confidence, just confidence. You're in the midst of life's trials and difficulties, and everything's caving in around you. You don't see any way. You say, God, I'm coming to your throne of grace, and I'm coming confidently because you know all about this, and I need some grace and mercy right now. If we are growing in sanctification, we will have a deeper, more intimate knowledge of God and relationship with God. We can, however, stifle. We can extinguish that spirit-prompted intimate knowledge. How do we do that? Well, quite frankly, by not accepting God's purposes in our life in the midst of difficult circumstances. You kick against the goads. No, I don't want this, God. You protest. Natural, human reaction. James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy. 
whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God's at work. I've asked God, can we do this another way? Jesus asked him, didn't he? Can we do this another way? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We can stifle, we can extinguish the Spirit's fire in our life by not being prayerful and not being worshipful. In other words, worshipful is not just singing songs. Worshipful is living our life, acknowledging him. It's that simple. We can extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit in our life, quite frankly, by not casting our anxieties on him. He cares for us. He cares for us. By operating in our own flesh rather than trusting him. Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't try to figure this out on your own. Don't take your own path. But in all your ways, acknowledge him. Lord, I want to know what you want. If you don't know, open this book. Open your concordance. Look up. You can do your own little Bible study before you take action on any particular subject. Do your own little Bible study. Learn God's will so that you can acknowledge him in all of your ways and have the confidence to know that he's going to make your path straight. If we don't do that, we extinguish. We stifle we put out the Holy Spirit's fire in our life. You say, I didn't know that was possible. Apparently it is because Paul says, don't do it. And know the ways that we do do it. The Holy Spirit, I love this, makes us more like who? Jesus, our big brother. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we, who with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He's making us more like Jesus. <laughs> How many want to be more and more like Jesus every day? Oh, not everybody. I'm, let me try that again. Who wants to be more and more like Jesus? <laughs> yeah. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't put out his fire. He's at work. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. This follows on the heels of what Paul says, obviously, in verse 28. He says, God, and we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, called according to his purpose. Now, in verse 29, he tells what his purpose is. For God, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What's God's purpose? Why did he save you? What's his will for you? You come like Jesus. Brand new, brand new, perfected human race. All perfect like Jesus. Oh. Don't stifle the Holy Spirit because he helps us to know God's will. We already looked at these verses. I'm just going to run over them real quickly. 
self-will, pride, stubbornness, indifference, insensitivity to God's will. All of these are means whereby we end up stifling the Holy Spirit's fire in our life. You ever dig your heels in and go, no. What have you just done? You're putting out the fire. Rather than saying, okay, Lord, I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's go. Man, watch out. Hold on. Buckle up. We're going on an adventure. The Holy Spirit grants us strength. He grants us strength to stay on the path of becoming more like Jesus. Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his what? Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, does God want the best for us? Why would we want to just resort to our worldly efforts and stifle what his work is in us? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a great passage. Paul had just been given a vision. He'd been taken up, he says, to the third heaven, seeing things. He says he doesn't have any words to express. And then he says this. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Oh, great. I was just in heaven, just saw these things, and now I'm back here, and now he's given me this thorn in my flesh to torment me. <laughs> and that sounds exciting. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, what? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will complain all the more intensely about my weaknesses. Is that what he says? No. He says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit, church. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? We cannot, we will not walk obediently with Jesus unless we are relying on the Holy Spirit's strength and on his power. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says there, don't get drunk on wine or high on weed. I mean, I talk to Christians all the time. We're smoking weed. They say, well, it's legal. Yeah, smoke some weed. You have a drink of glass of wine. I say, no, I don't. Don't get high. If you want to get high, get high on what? On the Holy Ghost. 
You have not experienced a high if you've never been high on the Holy Ghost. Be filled with the Spirit. And literally in the Greek text, it's be being kept filled with the Holy Spirit. It's ongoing present tense. How do you do that? How do you, how do you go on being filled with the Holy Spirit continuously? <laughs> he has your attention. You read his word. You talk to him throughout the day. God, thank you. I love you. Jesus, praise your name. Holy Spirit, have your way in my life. You could be driving along talking to him, couldn't you? Yeah. The empowering work of the Holy Spirit can be stifled. It can be extinguished through our pride, our overconfidence, and our own human abilities. Denying our need to rely on him moment by moment by moment. Church, let us not put out the Spirit's fire. Amen. Next week, part four. Can you hardly wait? <laughs> Lord, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you love us. Lord, we, would, we hardly have an easy time loving each other. You love us with a love that we can't possibly grasp and understand, but we thank you. You gave your son for us. You've given your spirit to us that we might live for you. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness by your spirit. For that, we're, we're just grateful. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of our own attitudes and behavior whereby we can indeed effectively put out the spirit's fire in our life, that we avoid those things. Help us, O oh God. We thank you. We love you this morning. As we come to your table, Holy Spirit, again, search our hearts. If there's any hurtful way in us, anything that is there that ought not to be there, anything that is not there that ought to be there, we ask you to convict us that we would repent, return back to you. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.